Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning. If you haven't met me, my name is Spencer Thomas. I'm the Director of Care and Counseling here, uh, and it's good to be with you. Uh, My wife was at first service, but her name is Molly, and we're always happy to say hi to you guys. Uh, My ministry is a little bit more in the background, uh, so I'm not up front much, which I kind of like it that way, Um, but I'll preach every now and then. Uh, So yeah, good to be here with you. Our sermon text today is Matthew 27. Uh, 1 through 10. So feel free to turn to that. And as you're doing so, let me give you a little context. Uh, We're skipping out of Corinthians uh, for just a little bit this week. Um, And instead, we're at the tail end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, This is called the passion account of the book, which means we've entered into the stage of Jesus's crucifixion and his death and later his resurrection. Uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas at this point. Um, and condemned to death by the Jewish authorities. Immediately preceding today's passage, uh, Jesus has has also been betrayed by his disciple Peter. Uh, Peter denied his friendship with Jesus three times, uh, just as Jesus had predicted. So read with me. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, And led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be together. And we're thankful for your church. We're thankful for your word and your truth. And we ask that it would speak powerfully this morning. Lord, let us leave today encouraged challenged, convicted, uh, moved towards you. Uh, We thank you that you are with us. Amen. It was her clear blue eyes that did me in. You see, Elizabeth, my eldest, 
she's four, and I had been, let's say, having an intermittent conversation over the past two hours. Usually that's fine. Conversations with toddlers are often pretty broken up uh, as they get distracted easily. The problem was that it was 3 a.m., and the breaks in conversation were me trying to go back to sleep. After around my fifth or sixth re-entry into talking about why Elizabeth needed to go back to sleep and stay asleep, I flipped my lid. I raised my voice. I shamed her. I made sure she knew what an inconvenience she was being to me right now. And then, as I finished unloading to my four-year-old daughter, I looked into her eyes, and I saw in them her pain and her sadness over what I had done. And in, those, and in those eyes, I recognized my selfishness, my lack of patience, my lack of gentleness, my sin. If you are like me, then you probably have experiences like this, if not on a daily basis, then a weekly one. Time and again, we are confronted by our sin. The question is, what are we to do when we are confronted by our sin? God has given us the story of Judas to better understand how we are called to respond when confronted by our sin. So let's take a look. This might sound a bit basic, but when we are confronted by our sin, we must accept that we are indeed sinful. And while this sounds basic, it is much easier said than done. That's because we fight hard to avoid acknowledging our sinfulness. There are many reasons why we seek to avoid acknowledging our sinfulness. Here's a story of one pastor's experience. He says, I was once conducting a Q&A session with high school teenagers. I told them they, they could ask me any question on any subject, and I would try and answer it. Their questions were typical of ones I had received in similar sessions scores of times. As the session drew to a close, one girl toward the back who had not said anything, raised her hand. I nodded, and she said, The Bible says God loves everybody. Then it says that God sends people to hell. How can a loving God do that? I gave her my answer, and she came back to me with arguments. I answered her arguments, and she answered my answers. The, question, the conversation quickly degenerated into an argument. I did not convince her, nor did she convince me. After a few more questions, I dismissed the session. And after the session, I approached her and said, I owe you an apology. I really should not have allowed our discussion to become so argumentative. Then I asked, may I share something with you? She said yes, and so I took her through a basic presentation of the gospel. When I got to Romans 3.23 and suggested that all of us were sinners, she began to cry. It was then that this high school senior admitted that she had been having an affair with a married man. The one thing she needed was forgiveness. When I finished the presentation of the gospel, she trusted Christ. The reason she did not believe in hell was because she was going there. In her heart, she knew that she had sinned. Her conscience condemned her, but rather than face the fact of her guilt, she simply denied any future judgment or any future hell. Fear 
can be a powerful motivator to discourage us from acknowledging our sinfulness. Even when we know the truth of our sinfulness, we act like the girl in this story and work hard to avoid the truth. Just look through the pages of the Bible and you will see this playing out time and time again. David attempting to avoid acknowledging his sinfulness through conspiracy and cover-up. Jonah trying to sleep through his. Israel turning to the distractions of their false gods and numbing themselves to their sin. Or Peter, who simply flat out denied the sinfulness in his heart. There are a variety of motivations to avoid acknowledging our sinfulness, and there are even more strategies in doing so. Do you have a favorite strategy that you use to avoid acknowledging your sinfulness? Do you seek to cover up your sinfulness? Maybe try to make it look less ugly. Or maybe you distract yourself or simply deny it. Take a minute and examine yourself. Ask the Lord to illuminate this to you. what about Judas? Let's imagine for a minute he sought to avoid accepting his sinfulness. Judas had just betrayed Jesus. His plotting and scheming was finally finished. And like the other disciples, he had run away after his plan was carried out. Imagine only a handful of hours have passed since then. Maybe now he was busy minimizing telling himself that what comes next is on the heads of those who he had turned Jesus over to, not himself. Or maybe he was busy looking for a distraction, seeking a place to find the bottom of the barrel or the arms of a woman. Or maybe he was simply still running, attempting to get as far away from any news of what his betrayal would mean for Jesus, hoping he wouldn't have to hear the final outcome. We don't know exactly what Judas did to avoid the sinfulness of his betrayal. But what we do know is that Judas did eventually hear that because of his betrayal, Jesus had been condemned and Jesus was now with Pilate, one step closer to his death. What we do know is that eventually, inevitably, Judas was confronted with the consequences of his sin. You see, God in his rich mercy does not allow us to avoid acknowledging our sinfulness. While there are a variety of ways that God confronts us with our sinfulness, the way he worked in the life of Judas and the way he often works in the life of you and me is through allowing the natural consequences of our sin to unfold and to confront us with our sinfulness. God has the power to conquer any and all of our strategies to avoid acknowledging our sinfulness. And he loves us so much that he does just that. So after this has happened, after God has lovingly forced us to acknowledge our sinfulness, what do we do next? Let's look at how Judas handled things upon acknowledging his sinfulness. Read verses three through five with me. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, in other words, after he was forced to acknowledge his sinfulness, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. The first thing we see is that Jesus sought to make amends himself. He took the burden his sin had created, and he attempted to relieve it himself by giving back the 30 pieces of silver. So Judas relied on himself to fix the mess his sin had made. Let's see how that worked for him. But before we go on, I want to take a minute to notice something. When we look at the whole story of Judas, he seems to act alone. Although he is part of the 12 disciples, we don't see him interact much with the others. His plot to kill Jesus was obviously kept to himself, and even now in verse 5, he's departing alone. While it's clear that Judas acted alone, I wonder if he ever felt his loneliness. He was part of the 12, after all. He spent much time with Jesus and the other disciples. I wonder if he succumbed to the lie that by simply spending time with them, he was having true fellowship with them. And I wonder if anyone here in this room today is like that as well. I wonder if there is anyone here who thinks that because they go to church each Sunday, or because they really volunteer each week, or because they are in a men's group and a small group, that they are not alone. Clearly, through the testimony of Judas, we can see that we can be surrounded by Christians, but not have true impactful fellowship with them. We can be surrounded by Christians and be utterly alone. Here's one way to check yourself for this. When is the last time you have enacted James 5? When is the last time you have confessed your sin to a friend? And when is the last time that those friends have sat down and prayed over it with you? What men and women do you have that know your particular sin struggles and are asking you about them regularly and encouraging you regularly? If you don't know, you might be more alone than you thought. And brothers and sisters, we are vulnerable when we are alone. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes 4 rings true here. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Many of you who are sitting here, like Judas, are active members of God's body, his church. But my fear is that some of you, like Judas, are alone. So if you're sitting here today and feeling alone, let me give you these two questions. What might be keeping you from truly entering into the fellowship God has provided you through his body? What is holding you back? And two, how might Satan be hoping to use your isolation to further his cause? I'll give them to you again. One, what might be keeping you from truly entering into the fellowship God has provided you through his body? In other words, what is holding you back? And two, how might Satan be hoping to use your isolation to further his cause? Brothers and sisters, we are vulnerable when we are alone. So if this rings true for you today, pray for the Lord to give you the strength and the courage to reach out to someone to begin the process of entering back into Christian fellowship. 
Here at Jacob's Well, we have small groups and Bible studies starting back up in the fall that you just heard about. Think about, consider joining one of these. We also have counseling. If you're in high school or junior high, we have Oasis, and there are fantastic students and leaders to get to know there. Our pastors and our staff are always more than willing to meet with you uh, to help you consider what taking advantage of this Christian fellowship could look like. And as you consider your involvement with other Christians, ask God to give you the humility to truly enter into it with a vulnerability rooted in Christ. So now, without a side done, let's continue on to read all of verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. So we see that Judas attempted to handle his own sin. And then we see that Judas killed himself. There is a big lesson to be learned here. Trying to handle our sin leads to death. We as sinners cannot fix the messes that our sin makes. We cannot atone for our sin. So while trying to handle our sin might not lead to our physical death, it will ultimately lead to our spiritual death. Here's the thing. Deep down, I think that each of us knows that we cannot handle our own sin. I would even suppose that Judas Judas knew that returning the 30 pieces of silver wasn't going to fix the mess he had made, nor was it going to get Jesus back. And he probably also knew that it wasn't going to appease his nagging conscience. So why do you think he did it? And why do you think we do this too? Why do we try to handle our sin even when we know we cannot? Let me tell you a story. We moved into our house in October, and I'm embarrassed to say we've already been locked out twice. The first time happened the day we changed the locks in the house. The garage door is a little finicky and can lock itself, and we hadn't put a spare key outside. Yet. I didn't feel very bad that time. I can't say the same for the last time it happened a couple weeks ago. Molly and I came back from a morning walk with the kids, only to find all the doors in the house locked. Timing can be funny, as Molly and I had just had a conversation the night prior that even though we live in a safe neighborhood, maybe we should lock our doors more often. So that night, Molly had gone around the house and locked each door, um, probably for the first time in weeks. Well, apparently, we now had a spare key, uh, but we had used it, and it was missing. So we were stuck outside, able to get into the garage, but not the house. And I cannot tell you how many times I searched the drawer that we put that spare key in. I went back to it and back to it again, looking through, hoping that maybe this time it would be there. Five times I went back again before I called the locksmith to go and break us in. Why did I keep checking even though I knew it wasn't there? Because I was desperate. I didn't want to pay the money for a dumb mistake. And I didn't want to face the embarrassment of our neighbors seeing that, yet again, we had been locked out of our house. Uh, When we are desperate, we are willing to try things that we know won't work because we so badly want a fix. And there is no more desperate situation than the state of our sinfulness. So while we know that trying to handle our sin won't work, we try to anyways. 
because we are so desperate to clean up the mess our sin has made. But after we have desperately tried and failed to handle our sin, what is left for us? Are we to be like Judas and give up hope? Let's look to the next verses to see why that need not be the case. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now before we dig in, let's get this out of the way. Uh, There is some disagreement with scholars on if Matthew is referring to Zechariah 11, Jeremiah 19, or a blending of the two here. While this can be a bit confusing to try to figure that out, uh, I want to affirm that it is more important, uh, not as important, to nail down precisely which prophet is being referenced here by Matthew, as much as the fact that Matthew is reminding us that even Jesus' betrayal and the fate of Judas, who had betrayed him, is used as a part of God's plan for our good. One of Matthew's aims in his gospel is to show that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah that has been foretold by the Jewish prophets. He is seeking to show that Jesus' coming, his death, and his resurrection have all been a part of God's good and gracious plan for us from the beginning. Here we see that all that had had happened was a fulfillment of God's word spoken by his prophets. We can find much encouragement in this. Why? Because God has always known that we would try to handle our sin. And God has always known that this would not work. And so, God has always had in store a way for he himself to handle our sin. You see, this prophecy was just one prophecy of many that Matthew is showing us Christ fulfilling through his death and resurrection. We were not meant to handle our sin. We, as sinners, cannot fix the mess that our sin has made. But there is one, Jesus, foretold of years before he came to save us that can handle our sin. Jesus lived a sinless life. He has no sin. And because of that, he can handle our sin. And he did handle our sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the mess my sin has made, for the mess your sin has made. And then he rose from the dead, conquering our sin, conquering death. Now remember, Judas had been told all of this. Judas was one of the twelve. He had heard the life-giving words of Jesus throughout his ministry. Yet Judas never turned to Jesus. He didn't turn to Jesus when Jesus let him know he was privy to Judas's plan of betrayal. He didn't turn to Jesus in the garden after he had handed him over to the Jewish authorities. He didn't turn to Jesus after he returned the 30 pieces of silver. Judas never turned to Jesus in repentance. He may have felt bad. He may have regretted his actions. But from what we know, he did not repent. The regret of Judas led to his death. It is repentance, a turning away from our sin and turning toward the mercy of God in Jesus that leads to life. When we are confronted with our sin, 
we must turn to Jesus, the only one who can handle our sin, who offers forgiveness, who offers healing, who offers new life. And we must ask God to give us the strength to do so. We are no better than Judas. And without the work of God in us, we too, like Judas, would be unable to turn to Jesus in repentance. Let's end with a final encouraging story. If you haven't read Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga, I highly encourage you to do so. Got a library right there, and there might be copies in it. Uh, this is an abridged portion of the end of the second book in his series. Let me give you a little brief context to help understand what's going on here. Kalmar uh, is the middle of three siblings, and he is the future king of his people, and he has just been cursed. His body has become that of a wolf, and he has lost most of his sanity and his humanity. However, he has been rescued by his family, and it is here that we see them seek to nurse Kalmar back to health. Let's read. The wolf, Kalmar, lay on the bed next to his brother, Janner, strapped down with leather cords. His eyes were yellow and wild, and he snapped at anyone who came near. Whenever they tried to talk to him, he howled and snarled. Every day, though, his mother would visit. And when she arrived, and before she left, she looked him in the eye and asked him his name. His answer was always violent. I don't know, he would say, or I have no name. His howls rattled the window. But at night, when moonlight passed through that small round window and slid across the floor, Janner, his brother, whispered stories of their past to Kalmar, and Kalmar listened. Then one night, something changed. Janner told his brother of the story of how he sought to rescue Kalmar and the despair he felt when he was too late. The wolf, Kalmar, stopped Janner mid-sentence. I remember, Kalmar whispered. Janner didn't know what to say, so he lay in the dark for a long time, hardly daring to breathe. Then Janner heard so soft that he thought it might be his imagination, the wolf, his brother, crying in the dark. Janner fell asleep with hope in his heart. In the morning when their mother came to wake them, Janner lay still, afraid to open his eyes and find that Kalmar's tears had been but a dream, that his brother would be as vicious and wild as ever. Janner begged the maker to answer his prayers. And the maker did. Good morning, Janner, his mother said. And good morning to you, she said to Kalmar. The furry creature stirred. What's your name? She asked as usual. My name, the creature said with its eyes still shut, is Kalmar. My father was Esben Wingfeather and I am his son, the High King. Janner leapt out of bed and ran to his brother's side. Kalmar, he said. Kalmar opened his eyes and they were clear and blue. Kalmar remembered who he was, but more importantly, he remembered who he belonged to. You, Christian, belong to Christ. You, Christian, are a son, a daughter of the Most High King. You, Christian, are forgiven, washed clean, and made a new creation because of Christ's work on the cross. Remember these truths. Remind one another of these truths and live firmly rooted in the knowledge that while you were a sinner, 
you have now been washed clean, made holy, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It is as his beloved son, as his beloved daughter, that we get to turn to our loving Father and find the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Out of that place, resting in his love for us, let us quickly, readily, joyfully bring our sins to Jesus, the only one who can handle our sins. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to handle our sins. Thank you for pursuing us in our sinfulness, for loving us. Lord, give us the humility to turn to you. Lord, remind us that we are your sons and daughters, that we have a father who delights in us, who sees us as made holy and washed clean, no longer sinners. How good it is to rest in your presence. Let us feel that today and this week as we go forth. Amen.